0: Hello and welcome to The Hack Report with me, Alex Jakes. This is the new podcast from Wannabe Hacks and, as it's the very first in the series, I could spend ages explaining to you what you can expect from these short programs. I could tell you about our aim to bring you sharp debate, special reports and interviews with the big names of journalism and those helping to shape its future. I could tell you about the exclusive content you won't be able to find anywhere else, not even on the brand new Wannabe Hacks website. I could tell you all of this. I could tell you the goals, I could write you a mission statement, or we could just get on with it. This is the Hack Report. In this first edition of The Hack Report, we'll be speaking exclusively to The Guardian's digital development editor, Joanna Geary, on how new digital methods are working at changing the journalistic landscape.
1: Obviously, some news organisations have been faster and more embracing of it than others. So um, I'm obviously biased, but I think The Guardian's been kind of at the forefront of doing that.
0: And you might want to sit down for this one. Three people under 25 praise the Daily Mail. Well, the Mail Online, to be exact. As the site that brings you female becomes the most visited newspaper website in the world, we task three hacks to make sense of it all.
2: Maybe other newspapers should be taking the same sort of approach to their websites as the Mail Online has. They need to start seeing their websites as in addition to the paper and not in place of it.
0: It's all on the very first edition of the Hack Report. And we start with this week's debate. In December of 2011, the Mail Online received in excess of 45 million unique visitors to propel it past the New York Times and leave it top of the pile as the world's most visited newspaper website. The Mail responded by doing its favourite activity, pointing out how much they'd beaten the BBC by. And the newly deposed New York Times stooped even lower, claiming the Mail didn't provide news... Not in the way we do, the good old-fashioned way. You may be surprised to hear the New York Times has an English accent when it thinks, but that's definitely how they hear themselves. So do these figures stack up? Are they even relevant? Or could it be the Mail Online is worthy of some praise?
3: As far as the Daily Mail goes, I think the spokesperson for the New York Times really kind of hit the nail on the head, Uh, and you know what, it did sound snooty, and it was a little snooty, and I don't really know if I'd expect anything less, Um, but I I think the argument makes sense, and I think that they are definitely right to point out that there's probably very little crossover between Daily Mail readership and New York Times readership. I think you really are kind of comparing apples to oranges on that level alone.
2: I don't really think that criticisms of the Mail Online are really justified. Okay, the content may not be to everyone's taste, and um, I know personally I only tend to go to the Mail Online when someone sent me a link to a specific article, but actually it's clear that they've hit upon something really good.
4: I think the Mail uh, differentiate their paper and their website in a very interesting way. Um, at News Rewired, they were referred to as a complimentary offering. Um, the paper does one thing and the, and the website serves a different purpose. And the result of that differentiation is that they've seen um, a massive massive traffic uh, that we just don't see elsewhere in the industry.
3: Another really important thing to look at, and which was brought up uh, by the New York Times spokesperson as well, was the fact that the Daily Mail is including one of their finance websites in that, you know, in that measurement, whereas the New York Times isn't including the Boston Globe, and the Boston Globe itself is as big as, you know, is one of the biggest sites in the U.S. and is one of the most successful digital, you know, newspaper websites in the U.S. and you know would easily put them past the Daily Mail if that was included, and and you know, I think generally it just kind of speaks to how little this actually really matters.
4: Apparently they may have included the, another million hits from their sister site, This Is Money, but I, st- I still think this is irrelevant. They're experiencing growth in readership unseen elsewhere in the industry. And as such, we as online digital journalists have to be looking at the Mail Online as an example, as a template. You know, we have to replicate the, the growth they're experiencing and attempt to learn from them.
2: The mad online obviously know what their readers want and what they're looking for and they're providing that all in one place and with some really clever little tricks to keep readers on the website. One thing that works particularly well is the picture bar down the side of every single story on there. I can't count the number of times I've started reading something on the mail online that someone's put on Facebook or Twitter. And then I have found myself reading several more articles. I've been attracted by the pictures down the side and been linked to other um, content on the site. So actually, I do think there's a lot that we could be learning from the Mail Online. Even if their content isn't to our taste, I think we can take a lot from what they're doing to keep readers on the site.
4: And I, I, don't, I don't really think you can just attack the Mail Online uh, you know, journalism and just say it's all pictures and regurgitated crap without um, taking note of the fact that they are clearly doing something right.
3: There was an article I had read, I think it was on Slate, that kind of pointed out that really the metric we should be looking at is kind of how the Daily Mail compares to something like TMZ or something like the Huffington Post, because I think that's who its direct competitors are. And I don't think that... And, you know, that's not even a criticism of the Daily Mail. I mean, I'll read the Daily Mail from time to time because I find it entertaining, but I also read the New York Times. Um, So I think think we tend to find it a lot easier to jump all over the Daily Mail, but, you know, you, you sort of have to admire what they've been able to do, uh, in a time when lots of people are struggling, especially, you know, the, you know, the New York Times is not having an easy go of it either. I mean, they've managed to find a decent model, uh, as far as being behind a paywall, but, you know, there's still a lot of improvement and the Daily Mail seems to be kind of ahead of that. And I think that's actually commendable.
2: Other newspapers should be taking the same sort of approach to their websites as the Mail Online has. They need to start seeing their websites as in addition to the paper and not in place of it. Um, And actually maybe if other newspapers start taking this approach we could start to see the same sort of growth in those newspaper websites as we've seen in the Mail Online.
0: That was Jonathan Frost, Natalie Clarkson and John Afredo trying to make sense of the Mail Online being the most visited newspaper website in the world. On the Hack Report, we're going to try and be about the issues rather than just the names. But this week, the issue and the name come nicely together. Joanna Geary, tasked with digital engagement at The Guardian, talked to our Nick Petrie about how journalists and media organisations are adjusting to the fast pace of change.
5: Why do you think it took so long for media organisations to open up a two-way discussion with their readers, bearing in mind how long uh, news organisations have been online now?
1: That, that's it's, it's kind of a slightly opening up can of worms. That's quite a complicated one. Obviously some news organisations have been faster and more embracing of it than others, so um, I'm obviously biased, but I think The yeah. Guardian's been kind of at the forefront of doing that. I also think again probably because of my background in, in regional news I think actually regionals and locals papers were um, a lot better at communicating with their or collaborating with their community so I think given that I think there's a, there's a sort of a two-pronged thing one is the nature of the publications we were working on prior to this which was um, you know obviously something that was a one-way sort of device for communication you'd put something on print and it would go out and you know, whatever the reaction was outside you probably didn't know unless you happened to know someone personally so there was never any consideration of that and that informed the culture in these organisations and I think that especially in large organisations where a lot of journalists may not have had regular contact with their readers it just wasn't on the radar so when this, and let's face it, this huge communication revolution came upon us it would have taken a long time for the culture of those organisations to catch up. You know, it's a problem we see time and time again on organisations where something big changes as part of their business, but because they're a large organisation set up to deal with things in a completely different way, it takes a lot of time for that change and the impact of that change to filter through into their practices.
5: You've just started here at The Guardian. What's the biggest challenge you face on a day-to-day basis in the newsroom?
1: Remembering everybody's names. (laughs) There's a lot of people here and I'm still getting to the point where um, I know everyone's first names and surnames. There's a number of projects I'm working on at the moment. One of them, which is quite interesting, is um, looking at bringing a developer into the newsroom. Um, We're just finding out whether that really adds the value that we think it it would do to the way that we do our news and how that differs from having them upstairs and working within their product teams. I think the, the challenge I have is that it's very difficult often to communicate the difference between the time it takes to develop something and how easy it is to estimate the time it takes to develop something with how long it takes to estimate how long it will take you to write up a story. And I think sometimes that's kind of a complicated thing to try and communicate to people. Very often I think they think writing code and writing A story can be in somehow, you know, compared, yet it's much more like when you're writing code as if you're starting the story from scratch and you have no sources and you don't know who knows what and you're going to have to make all the phone calls and phone around and it's very difficult at that point to estimate how long it's going to take you to write that story. I think that's the same with code and trying to get that sort of Um, ability to communicate that between journalists and developers so that one doesn't feel that the other is sort of having over expectations and the other side doesn't feel like they're not understood is is quite an interesting challenge.
5: This is going to be a tough one because there's an awful lot of news out there at the moment but um, what's the most impressive story that you've seen uh, sort of in recent times that puts new digital techniques to work alongside traditional reporting?
1: I love the way that Paul Lewis did the Reporting the riots, I thought that was um, a wonderful combination of, of on-the-ground reporting and collaborating with people who were actually, you know, right there at the scene and being able to work to verify the sort of information that was coming out. And I think, you know, that was all done at a very fast pace, and I really admire that. That's that was um, that was something that I felt really used technology in a way that aided the journalism rather than just sort of using it as some sort of vehicle to display it. it.
5: It aided the immediacy of it as well, didn't it? Because when he decided he needed to go to Birmingham, he put out the message, I'm on my way, it's an hour and a half journey. By the time he got there, he had places to go and visit and people to talk to.
1: Absolutely. It was, a, you know, it, it made everything a lot quicker. Um, and it also, um, I think, allowed him to get a better sense of what was going on in the communities that were suffering from the riots. And I think that... You know, his experience of that has helped inform the Reading the Riots coverage that we've done subsequently and I think will inform a lot of the way that we do sort of breaking news events in the future. And, and not just Twitter, I think, um, you know, the way he used Backroot Messenger as well. Basically picking and choosing the tools that most helped to get the story I think is, is quite impressive.
5: So, and you, so you just mentioned you're know, choosing tools is important. I wonder what you think about how are these tools restricting the way we sort of imagine how we can tell stories.
1: I could quite easily get into a sort of long rant about that. I think we have been subjected to a lot of change and a lot of innovation from outside of the media business and we often get distracted from the journalism by looking at all the tools and thinking we must be on them, we must be on every platform, we must be doing everything everywhere at all times using all these things without properly assessing, actually, do, do they help or hinder what we do as journalists. And I think it stopped us from imagining our own features of what are the tools we need, how, how do we best reach these people, what is it actually that we're trying to do here.
0: That was Nick Petrie in conversation with Joanna Geary of The Guardian. This has been the First Hack Report with me, Alex Jakes. My thanks to Jonathan Frost, Natalie Clarkson and John Afredo. The music used today was by David Bowie and henry mancini if you've got any comments at all get them across to podcast at wannabehacks.co.uk that's the hack report goodbye